some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. Welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. My name is John Potter. I'm the leader of the Preston Lib Dems and host this motley crew. And with me today to talk about all things that are going on in the news, which changes every two minutes with this shambolic government, we have the wonderful David McKenzie. How are you doing, David? Hi, I'm good, thanks. David was the candidate on Glasgow Kelvin in the Scottish elections, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at @DavidXMackenzie. Uh, we have Laura Gordon, who was the parliamentary candidate for Sheffield Hallam. Hi, Laura. How's it going? And much to her disgruntlement, she's just called Lib Dem Laura on Twitter because she couldn't get Laura Gordon. We've just been discussing how annoying that is. And but last but by no means least, we have the chief executive, I have to always say, of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, Claire Halliwell. How are you doing, Claire? Hi, uh, thanks for having me, John. And you can follow Claire on Twitter at, at Claire Halliwell, but with a one instead of an L at the end. There we go. So, guys, not much has been going on, not a lot happening. We've we've penned a whole list of things we wanted to talk about today, and things that we didn't include were things like everything that's going on in Northern Ireland to do with an amnesty for all the troubles and the Brexit and the Brexit uh, issues that are coming to a fore at the end of this week. But let's start, because it is Freedom Day, you know. So In England. In England, it's kind of not quite Freedom Day in Scotland and Wales, which we should put that caveat in. But I suppose it's almost like we should do an episode about where, the, where we stand now. Where is the country now? It's been such a rough year. But, I mean, Laura, do you want to start us off by talking about what today means for you? Well, what does it mean for me? Well, um, I'm not sure it means that much for me because I, you know, I have very young children, so I don't go to nightclubs. I mean, the main thing that, as far as I can tell, is different. I mean, it does mean actually I can go to a wedding next month. Um, So I think weddings are now legal and you can have as many people as you like at them nightclubs are legal although there might be now vaccine passports introduced in September and Boris Johnson also said today that although nightclubs are open as of midnight he doesn't want people to go to them which seems a little counterintuitive to me meanwhile um, everyone still needs to self-isolate unless you're in a pilot program which no longer applies to Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak apparently does now apply to everyone in the NHS, although um, actually NHS staff and quite a lot of trust had been told that they should come to work even if they'd been pinged several weeks ago. So actually, I'm not sure how much of a change that is. And also primary school children still need to self-isolate, but um, NHS staff who work with highly vulnerable people in hospital do not. So I think we're we're through the looking glass. We're just, we're absolutely through the looking glass. I, I honestly don't know why people are confused. I think that you, you know that was that was really easy to understand, isn't that right, David? It's it's just a shambles. I mean, the the idea that anybody who is trying to make sense of what they should and shouldn't do right now from the general public has any idea of what the rules are and how to follow them is is a nonsense. And ultimately, the blame lies with the government. I mean, I've been saying, people constantly keep on asking me, and, you know, for anybody that's listening, I think we've talked about this before, I do live in England because I work there. Obviously, my family still live in Scotland. So I am now succumbing to Freedom Day as is. But I've had people ask me, you know, why is the Prime Minister doing this now? Uh, You know, COVID cases are rising. Why are we easing restrictions? Why are we now asking people to, oh, you know, wear a mask if you want to, but please maybe think about wearing one even if you don't want to. And to me, the only the only real view that I can take is by pushing personal responsibility onto the general public, you can wash your hands of anything that comes next. Because effectively you can say, well, sorry, we asked you to use your common sense, your personal responsibility. It's not our fault. Claire? Oh, it's the U-turns again. I mean, we had a U-turn yesterday within about three hours of it being public that Boris wasn't going to self-isolate because he was part of his own special trial. And then suddenly the reaction, presumably on Twitter, meant that he, he 
quickly had to reverse. And and we just can't do government by by Twitter. Um, here in in Wales, we have had some restrictions lessened uh, this weekend, which um, lots of people have been taking advantage of as the the temperatures have soared. But actually, I think I personally feel most comfortable because I know exactly what the rules are. I still have to wear a mask if I go into a shop. I still have to wear them if I go on a train or any other public transport. And uh, I have the joys of my mother staying with me this weekend, put her back on a train to England today. And fundamentally, she could take her mask off as soon as she got to Bristol. It's just mad. So the, the, the you know, this uh, pandemic doesn't recognise borders. So why are we giving ourselves different different rules in different parts of the UK? Uh, and you know after all of this we're following the science this feels like something that is totally led by a date that somebody's put in their diary and the u-turn was hilarious yesterday just before i bring laura in where i think the winner for best sassy moment came from the former tory mp david gork who said i think there'll be a u-turn in two hours and it was like 30 minutes later or something like that and i went oh well at least i was right laura yeah, I mean, I think with this shift of personal responsibility, I think it the the problems with it go back actually quite a long way, which is also that it would be easier to shift a personal responsibility if the government had made any effort at all over the last 18 months to explain to people how it's actually spread. And I have to say that, um, you know, I don't know how much it's a, you know, a coincidence, but I do wonder if perhaps the devolved administrations have done this slightly better. And over the last um, couple of months, I've been on two camping trips uh, one up to Scotland and one down to Devon. And it was quite striking that, you know, the one in Scotland had signs up saying, you know, keep the windows open and keep your mask on in the, you know, in the toilet block. And the one in Devon was like, wash your hands. And so, you know, and wash and wipe the sink down after you've used it. And it's like, well, it's an airborne virus. And actually like the fact that, you know, people are still um, pushing, you know, dutifully wiping things down and, um you know, and, and, and hand sanitizer as, as the way to beat it rather than opening the window, you know, but then being there unmasked and with the windows closed is just, it's just a massive, massive failure of communication. And, you know, how can you expect people to take responsibility if you haven't tried to explain to them what they need to be doing, you know, how to, and, and, you know, this goes, this goes all the way through. I mean, when, um, when I went into hospital to, to have my daughter, I had a elective cesarean. So I needed to self-isolate for three days beforehand because um, I was going in for planned surgery. And so I had this call with the NHS infection control people who were telling me, you know, to wipe down the kettle and commonly used areas like doorknobs and not saying things like, you know, open windows if, you know, in rooms that you can't avoid sharing like the bathroom. And it just, the fact that, even sort of the NHS infection control people don't seem to understand how the virus is spread. It just, you know, how on earth are ordinary people supposed to? Yeah. And I want to put something out there that I think, obviously, whatever the, Claire's right, they are not following the science. You, you could see it painfully on Sir Patrick Vallance and Sir Chris Whitty at that thing that they just thought when, you know, Freedom Day and those two next to them were going, maybe not. It was really obvious to see. But do we think this is because the government has actually lost the public confidence in their ability to handle this virus anyway? They thought that because of Hancock and what, and going right the way, I suppose, to Barnard Castle was the first one. They thought, well, there's no way we can have a moral authority on this issue. So we might as well open up. Or am I, or is that me being cynical? I think people are fed up. I don't, you know, I think everybody has had enough. I've, I've had enough. But at the same time, I just, I think it's really difficult when the government are, you know, say as I do, don't follow me. And it's just madness uh, that we, yes, we don't want a nanny state and all the rest of it, but actually looking after people isn't, isn't that. And being safe and protecting people and protecting people that are less fortunate than us and uh, protecting people who might not have the, you know, might not have had the jab. Um, I, you know, I've got friends who are absolutely petrified of going into public spaces now because they know that everybody else is just not going to, going to be doing what the government, what the government has told them to do, i.e., you know, pretty much free for all. And if they've got any uh, immuno issues, actually that's really, really dangerous for them um, I mean, we are so lucky that we are 
doing well with the jabs. I've had my second jab. Um, 75% of Wales has had its second jab, and that's absolutely incredible. I didn't think we'd be here in such a short amount of time. And yes, you know, we've hopefully that means that fewer people are going into hospital, but it really worries me. Actually, people are still catching it. And what are the effects of long COVID? Um, the, the government just seemed to be gambling with people's futures. David, why are they doing that? Because other than, say, the tabloid press, which has been pushing for for uh, restrictions to be eased, actually, if you look at public opinion, there is a lot of hesitancy in the public opinion saying, we're not sure this is the right way to go. So why do you think the government is doing this right now? Well, I think it's, it's kind of it's two main factors. The first one is, I would say, look, that this is a populist government. Ultimately, I know you're saying there is a lot of hesitancy there from, you know, from the general public, but I do think there is a groundswell of people who are now saying, as Claire said, I'm fed up. I want to get back home with my life. You know, I can't go a holiday. I can't do all these things. And I can absolutely understand that. But ultimately, when government rules by popular opinion, it doesn't do what has to be done when you have to say to people, I'm afraid you're wrong. And right now we need to do what's right, not what's popular. So ultimately you you get this situation where you will have people. And the thing that really irks me is calling this Freedom Day, when at the same time you're then talking about bringing in, because they're saying, oh, you know, we've got to give people back their freedoms and liberty, etc. And then you're talking about bringing in COVID passports, which is ultimately going to create a two-tier society, which says some people have no freedoms and other people have absolute freedoms. But the, the other point is, um, you know, as you kind of said, there is um, there seems to be this... Um, media out there and I must apologize because some of it is my countrymen who've recently launched a, a new news channel um, and one of them used to be the you know an archaeologist on a TV program called Coast who now apparently seems to be giving scientific opinions on how masks do or do not transmit a virus um, and there just seems to be people who are taking people's word for it that oh yeah absolutely they're right we've had two jabs uh, there's no real it's almost like I'm fine thanks everybody else you just get on with it I don't really care so um, I think what we need to take into account is as Claire said you know there are people out there I haven't had my second vaccine yet I won't be getting mine till mid-August um, and you know I know people who haven't had the vaccine yet uh, you know my partner hasn't had it um, I know people who, who do who do not qualify to have it because of existing um, illnesses you know they do have um, uh, reasons why they cannot have the vaccine are we, are we ultimately saying that that person just has to self-isolate for, you know, be all and end all till we come at the other end of this? It's just, it, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me at all. I think the poor buggers who are vulnerable still. Like, like you said, there are people who, for v- various reasons, haven't been able to get jabbed. And it's like, and I remember one of those, the stupidest thing was, can you avoid people, go out, but avoid people that haven't been jabbed? How are you supposed to know that as an individual? It's just a shambolic absolute cesspit of lack of knowledge really isn't it i don't think they know what they're doing to be honest i just like it cannot possibly be rational you know either we vaccinated enough people and we just need to reach herd immunity by letting some people get it in which case why are they still making primary school children self-isolate or we need to keep vaccinating more people and we shouldn't be opening you know up further until more people are vaccinated in which case why have we just opened nightclubs and honestly like i you know i don't like some of the tone of some of the commentary on this because it has been a sort of tone of shaming people who are going to nightclubs when young people have just had a brutal 18 months and you know frankly you know especially given that there's a decent chance that we'll be back in lockdown in september you know like fair play go to a nightclub now if you want to I mean it's not what I would do because I'm old and sad but you know I can see why young people want to but what interesting what Laura's just said there though she believes that we might be back in lockdown now do we think this is irreversible like Johnson says or will it be another one is that we'll be right for Christmas and then actually cancel it a couple of days beforehand well, my, my main fear, John, is, is, as I've just said, I think their whole push to put this personal responsibility spin on it is so that when it comes to the time when there is a there is a wave, you know, that, that says that we do have to look at going into another lockdown, that they ultimately go, well, sorry, this is your fault because we asked you to have personal responsibility over this. And ultimately, this has been caused by people who didn't want to take personal responsibility to act accordingly. And I think you can see that with what Laura said there. Absolutely right. I don't think you can blame young people for going out 
in nightclubbing when the government's telling them it's fine to do. That's ultimately that decision rests with the government who've said, okay, you're fine to operate, go and do as you see fit, but we're asking you to have some kind of restraint, which I don't understand how you can have restraint mm. in a nightclub, especially yeah. when you've been drinking, uh, you know, you've been stuck inside for over a year. The likelihood that you're going to somehow, you know, keep social distancing is just madness. So I think we'll get to a point where there is a, a huge wave of uh, surging cases. And I think they'll simply just shrug it off and say, well, we, we left it up to you and you've done this. It's really interesting. I, I found like speaking to friends from all parts of the UK, you know, whether their firm is going back to the office or not. And there's lots of firms that still are holding off. Um, they're not making it compulsory to go back in. And I, I think that's, you know, the right, the right thing for, for many um, people, unless, unless they can, you know, if they can work at home, uh, it should still be try to work from home but having spoken to some some business owners actually they're still saying we're not sure we're going to go back this year mm. and, and that must be either they know something or equally they're they're scared of an, another spike and having to send everybody home and seeing like the numbers of people at you know workforces that are being decimated uh right now you know that was it the metropolitan line was shut at the weekend it's just incredible that these are massive warning signs to this government. And I think David's right. I think they're going to totally, totally blame the individual and say it was your fault uh, when, we, when we might have to go back into a form of lockdown uh, towards the end of the year. So, so what do you think the consequences will be? Because we saw in the, the May elections that basically all the ruling parties in Scotland, Wales and England all had a bit of a kind of unite around the flag, kind of a bit of a decent election night. Do we think there'll be any consequences for the Tories as a result of the pandemic or people kind of factored that in? It was a global pandemic. It wasn't just Britain. You know, I had an NHS resident, working resident in my patch who thought Boris had done a brilliant job. You know, couldn't he couldn't have done any more. It was the same everywhere. And when I talked about other countries that have done far better, she didn't know about that. So do we think there'll be any, even with the public inquiry, if or when it happens, do we think there'll be fallout? Well, I, I mean, I can only talk to, you know, what I've, I've seen. I think, I think it depends on what the narrative is when we come out the end of this. I think as it stands right now, they're still pushing this narrative of, and, and okay, you know, fair play where it's due, they have ruled out the vaccine rollout very well. And that's what gave them the boost in May to obviously ultimately perform as they did in the local elections. I think when we look at the, the whole of the pie and we review how it's been handled as a whole, I think there'll probably be a different take on that. But, you know, as with all things, some people will just go, oh, well, it's easy to say that in hindsight, you know, and, and there'll be people who will not change their opinion. I think if you look at uh, in Scotland, you know, when we've reviewed and we've done inquiries into how things were handled in care homes, I think there's a lot of people now who are retrospectively saying, oh, hold on a minute. I didn't realise all this was going on when I gave my vote to the SNP in May. Um, so I think there are there's, there's things that will come out of the woodwork. It's just when they come out and how badly that will be damaging. What do you definitely. think, Claire? I definitely agree. And I think we saw a bit of a change even amongst the Tory vote when, when the Hancock uh, stuff came out. Um, there was a definite mood shift, um, which there hadn't been. And I do sort of think if that news had come out, in the local elections, with uh, you know, to hear the Senate elections and, uh, and obviously the Parliament elections in Scotland, I do wonder if it would have slightly depressed the the Tory vote further. Um, uh, you know, I think maybe the devolved administrations might not feel the heat in the same way. Uh, and you know, here we're we're having a UK wide inquiry. It's unlikely that we'll have a Wales specific one because so many decisions are made uh, by the UK government. But actually, um, it has still a view that things have been marginally better here uh, because we went into to lockdown a bit sooner and it's lasted a little longer. Um, but it'll be fascinating whether that holds out next year. And as you say, maybe they'll time the inquiry for just the right moment, which they've done with previous inquiries. And I'll be fascinated from both your point of view, actually, about because when all this kicked off and you started to have the different restrictions, you know, perhaps Scotland going a little bit sooner into a kind of lockdown and things like that. And people saying, oh, is this where the kind of the devolution argument really gets shown to the people and people will get it more than what they, they, that they previously have? 
So do you think that the consequences are also going to be, then that's not going to follow through? I think it depends whether you're talking independence or whether you're talking devolution. And I think actually the Labour government here have done a very good job of saying it's about more devolved powers. It's not about going independent. And I imagine that it is a slightly different story north of the border. Yeah, yeah, it very much is. Like they're always going to push the line of, oh, this is the reason why we have to take all our decisions here because there's such a disparity between the decisions we make and the decisions that are made in, in England. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, Claire's absolutely right. Look, the, the Labour government in the Senate has made a really good case for why more devolution is the correct way to go and why it's actually done some really beneficial things for Wales and more power to them because they've actually made that argument very, very well. Um, but we've got a government in Scotland who has got one eye on one thing, and that is independence. And all the rhetoric has been pushed towards about how this actually makes the case. And we'll probably come on to the other subject we talk about will be the triple lock, which I think is also going to be hugely damaging to the, the prospects for making the case for the union as well. Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Rains. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Praetorains website at praetorains.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. Yeah, and we'll move on because talk about damaging to your kind of credibility. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happened with, after the Euros, the kind of cultural games that the government seems to like to play seriously backfired them in my opinion with this whole kind of taking a knee booing of players etc where I think fair play to though I mean I don't follow football anymore as anyone knows I'm pretty much I gave up on football a few years ago but they just misjudged it so badly the pretty Patel and then there's people like Tyro Mings and other people coming out and saying actually don't whistle blow to racists and then come back and give a and then complain when racists have a go at us so how is that? Do you think the government's going to stop doing these sorts of culture wars or these kind of dog whistle sort of policies? I mean, Claire, what do you think? I mean, I think we, if anybody's read the Gareth Southgate letter, uh, it's quite an incredible thing, thing to read. And it, it made me proud to be English, dare I say it, from Wales, um, because actually that showed true leadership. Uh, my concern is that. Uh, you can easily turn it back on footballers and say, well, that's all right for them. They're multimillionaires, etc. And that is the retort that seemingly comes uh, as soon as they make a comment or put their head above the parapet. Um, and I fear that sadly, this is it's a, a summer where the in, you know, English football team have done well uh, and are at the top. And um, actually, the fans, the main fans, have, have not helped overly with some of their activity. So um, actually, I think this might be sadly a, a couple of months um, that it will be news and they will be popular as individuals. And, and sadly, the government and their culture war will, will continue. Um, it's obviously working for them, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Um, the Tories, if anything, are quite, you know, they will be looking at polls and be making those judgment calls. Um, and I, I think, sadly, uh, they might follow it. Um, although we might see the end of GB News and that might be a positive. David? I, I should think wait, as Before you come in, David, I should just point out to anyone who's actually watching the show, David looks like what happens when a Scottish person has too much sun. I don't know quite what's happened. Oh, iron brew. It's, it's the, uh, well, uh, do you know what? I do actually have iron brew with me right here. So that's uh, the, uh, it's, it's what it is, is the sun is setting and I've opened the, I've opened the curtains and it's sort of giving me a, a, a lovely glow on my face. But... It's either that or you're about to join Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory as one of the umpalumpers. It's one of the, one of the two, but no, go on, David. So, what, so they've, they've got into these culture wars. It's backlashed on regarding the football and racism that's come back from it. So what do you believe? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I've probably got a bit of a unique take in this because obviously I'm not English and I'm, 
you know, I'm going to probably get a lot of stick for saying this. I'm not a supporter of the English national team. That doesn't mean to say I support any, you know, I actively support anybody that plays against them, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm sort of neutral in that regard. Um, look, I, I don't think this government's going to stop this sort of culture war agenda anytime soon. I think, um, you know, a drip and tap does a lot of damage and I think they've looked at where are they most likely to succeed at the next election and they're still trying to sort of hoover up that old UKIP Brexit party vote where this sort of rhetoric seems to play quite well when they shape it. But what they ultimately do is they kind of, they go to the the sort of edge of something and just kind of go to that edge without saying something very, very offensive, but enabling other people to do that. So you're, you're, you're enabling, I, I think what I find quite interesting from a perspective of, um, you know, I'm a massive football fan, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, used to be a season ticket holder at Rangers, a huge Scottish football fan. Um, the kind of the kind of abuse that I'd been used to was all religious based, um, and then coming down south when I did and, and attending. In fact, the first game I attended down south was a Tottenham Hotspur game, and uh, and somebody was shouting racial abuse a couple of seats behind me, and I kind of thought, seriously, is nobody going to say anything about this? I can't believe we're just all sort of sitting here and accepting this. There does seem to be an undercurrent that still seems to to happen in English football, and it's down to leaders to show the way. And when you default to the leader being the manager of the national team and not the prime minister, you know, and, and everybody else in government, I think it says a lot about where the priorities for this government actually lie. I just want, before I bring Laura in, I want to read something out from a, a black friend of mine who put this, um, put this on social media when it all kicked off. She said, you know, in horror movies, when someone is walking in the dark and you know there's a murderer, monster or whatever lurking, and then the light turns on and exposes them, this is what it's like being a black person sometimes in Britain. Um, she, she goes and says, it's exhausting. It, it's really tiresome. And she just said, it, it only takes a little thing like this to show some of the undercurrents that we all don't experience. And I really, I get the fact there's four white people here on this chat, but we obviously we have we are planning more episodes to do with this. It's exhausting from people from ethnic backgrounds when this stuff comes up. And she, and she ends the thing just saying, I'm just going to turn off social media. I'm going to spend some time with my friends, recharge, and then carry on. But they shouldn't have to have to do that, should they, Laura? I mean, of course not. And, I mean, I think it's awful the level of abuse that those players faced. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's horrendous. There's absolutely no justification for it. But, you know, you have to start thinking about, well, actually, how do we move forward from this and improve? And I think that's where some of the positives come out. So there's sort of really positive reactions in Manchester around the Marcus Rashford memorial. Not sorry, not memorial. He's not dead. Um, um, mural. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, um, you know, and and that that kind of slightly more positive, you know, kickback. And actually having to see our, our politicians kind of scrambling backwards to show how they've supported this team all along. Um, and, you know, definitely weren't kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudging that it was OK to boo the national team. Um, it's, you know, it does show that I think there is a potential for them to lose the culture wars because actually culture wars don't don't go one way. And, you know, sometimes if you stoke up a culture war, you lose it. And I think that's what we saw. Um, and I think it does show that there is a kind of a, a sort of template for for identifying those issues where they are going too far and, and kind of pushing back on them. And I, I think. Where I disagree with you, Claire, is I'm, I don't know, I've, I'm just not sure that the Conservatives are doing this because they've seen polling evidence and know that it works for them. I think that's why they think they're doing it, but I'm just not sure that it's true. Like, I just, I, I'm sorry, I don't believe that, you know, they, that this kind of anti-woke agenda is what, you know, motivates your kind of marginal red wall voter in Hartlepool I just I, I'm sorry I, I just I think that people are people in you know places like these red wall seats are often fed up I think they are you know I don't think they're sort of in with the woke agenda either but I think the the kind of median position on this stuff is to just not think about it very much and be much more interested in those kind of bread and butter issues I mean I think the reason they're reaching for this is because they don't have anything to say on any of those issues so what else do they have um, but I don't think that it's, you know, some kind of deeply, th well, I don't know, maybe it is some kind of deeply thought through electoral strategy and they've have come to the conclusion that they've got nothing else. And so this is what they have to do. But, um, but I don't think it, I, I think we have seen today that it won't necessarily work for them. And actually, you know, if it comes to the next election and they're talking about kind of 
how this anti-woke agenda and and kind of everybody else is talking about the NHS, then I'm not sure that that will necessarily work for them. Claire, is it just a distraction technique? I mean, I I, I hope Laura's right. I really do. I, I hope that, um, you know, that the, the pressure on our leaders continues uh, and that we continue to call them out. Um, and I think it's sort of sort of sad that it's come at the expense of, of three very, very young footballers uh, and Gareth Southgate to stand up and say, no, we've had enough. And I think we've had, you know, periods before where, um, you know, we have uh, blackouts on social media and stuff like that, all to tra- try and uh, draw attention to this as an issue. Um, but it's just whether this stays in the mindset of, of individuals like ourselves, actually, we must not forget what's happened this summer uh, and, and make sure that the world is a better place. Um, and, you know, I do think there's an opportunity, not that sounds awful, but we have to keep this going. We have to make sure that people realise that this is this is the government that we have at the moment. Uh, and it's and it's one that is trying to or has attempted to stoke uh, hatred. I mean, it is possible that I am being far too optimistic and, and sort of insanely irrational optimism is the kind of natural um, natural home of the Liberal Democrats oh, um, sort of of necessity. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, um, I think it is probably useful to get that caveat in there. Yeah, I was just going to add, I mean, I think when we also look at this, we've got to I, I tend to think we've got to realise that I don't think this is just something that's happened under Johnson's premiership. I mean, when you look at, you know, back when David Cameron's government was sending vans around, you know, ethnic minority communities saying, if you're illegal, go home, which makes assumptions that, you know, oh, if you look, if you look what somebody might not think a British person looks like, there's a high chance you might not be here legally, just says that you... <laughs> it was the swarms of immigrants kind of speech kind of thing, wasn't it? That was right. Yeah, yeah. There's this. I think there's this undercurrent in the Conservative Party, and I think what Laura's saying, I kind of get, is that I don't know if they know that they're doing it. If they're just that, you know, if if they literally are just that unwise. But I think I tend to think that as they know what they're doing and they know why they're doing it. But I, you know, I mean, a lot of people have, again. I've talked about are they taking the Republican playbook? And just bringing it over to Britain because it, it firms up a base that they want to now protect this kind of white working class vote for lack of a kind of a, a more detailed analysis. They just want to keep that in, and by sto- soaking up these sorts of issues, does it help them keep that going in going forward? We'll I will we'll see as that happens. But speaking of which, let's move slightly off that to talk about the Labour Party now. Keir Starmer has. Um, gone on his listening tour. There's a lot of talk about Keir. He's had his year. Now, one thing that came up, I don't know if any of you saw, he did these big kind of um, rooms of voters in Blackpool, is what he, what he did. And I, well, there's one point that came up in it, and I, this was uh, Laura Koonsberg, who was doing it for the BBC, who I have a lot of time for. There's a lot of people that don't dislike Laura Koonsberg, but I think actually one of these things we have to respect journalists as well and and actually the work they do are holding power to account. But in this particular question, there was a, a lady that hadn't voted Labour. These were all former Labour voters. And this lady didn't know that Tony Blair was not the leader of the Labour Party. And she went, oh, man, that's so bad. That's so terrible. I feel so bad. And Laura Coonsberg automatically said to her, that's not your fault. That's the politician's fault for not appealing to you enough or not engaging with you enough. But I wonder, and this is not meant to be controversial, but do we also let people off who aren't particularly engaged? Should she know, 15 years later, since Tony Blair stood down, that actually you do have some um, responsibility on yourself about the civic nature of Britain? Is that, how would you, how would you do that argument that is it just about the politicians or do the voters have to take some responsibility? Oh He's no! Start. Well, um. if it, <laughs> I'm going to go David first. Go on, David. Right. Okay. Well, as somebody who was formerly a long-time member of the Labour Party, uh, yeah, I do think that that absolutely. To, in my opinion, I think it. You, you can, you know, to, talking about Tony Blair. You know, Tony Blair said in a podcast once he sat in front of a room full of Labour Party members. This is before they won in 1997. Um, it was after they'd lost the 1992 general election, and some Labour Party members said, you know. They voted Conservative, you know, the last four successive elections. 
they've done all these things to them. You know, just what is the public thinking, Tony? And Tony said, you know, it's you know, it's not what the it's not the public's fault. It's about the party and how it appeals to people and how it gets its message across and how it lets people know. So I think that you fundamentally you've got to look at the party itself and say, well, what have they actually done to get themselves in a position where they have a, a leader who cuts through, who people know. They can identify easily. They probably identify part of themselves in that leader and understand that they're going to stick up for the values that they believe in. Um, so I, I think, in my opinion, you're probably going a bit too far to blame the general public when they don't know that. Um, but I kind of, in some sense, get what you're saying. Yeah, there is kind of a, you know, a, you know, have things got that bad that people are so disengaged from politics? And that's something probably every party needs to address. I think we saw some of the, the turnouts, um, you know, just weren't great in May. I know they were, but we all go, oh, well, they were locals. Here they were, you know, Senate elections uh, in Scotland, parliamentary elections. You know, we have one of the highest numbers at uh, uh, turnout. At, I think it was just over 40% in Wales. That's bonkers. Um, and, you know, we do, that's on us as a party uh, and the other political parties to make more of it. But actually... Um, what are we doing wrong to not engage with people and think that they can make a difference at the ballot box? And I think that maybe is part of it that people fundamentally don't think they're going to make any difference to the overall result at the moment if they go and vote. So why, you know, why should they be engaged with something that's happening to them rather than with them? And maybe this is, and before I bring Laura in, because I know she, she, she'll want to come in, that, again, comparing it to America, which has even worse turnouts than we do, I mean, they have elections for a lot of things. They do, obviously, from the local sheriffs to courts and judges and everything else. Um, but is the fact that the culture war there is obviously hyped up even more with that two-party system, does it then just alienate people think, oh, God, it's just an ugly pit and I don't want to get involved with any of it? I mean, I think a lot of the time people are correct that their vote won't make a difference because we have an extremely undemocratic voting system that, you know, for most people, their vote actually won't make a difference. And, um, you know, actually, we see higher turnouts when people think that it will. And we see higher turnouts when the outcome of the general election is in doubt. So, you know, I think our lowest turnouts of, of kind of modern political history were in the kind of 2001 and, and 2005 elections where basically everybody knew what was going to happen most people were in safe seats anyway so so people kind of just didn't bother to vote and actually can you really blame them like it it wouldn't have made a difference um so I mean sorry to be peak lived again but I do think that some of this does have to come down to system reform and I think some of it as well down to down to kind of media as well, because I think a lot of the time our media just isn't very good at kind of explaining the issues and putting across the issues in a way that is appealing to people. It's often very kind of horse race focused. So, you know, he says this and she says that and, um, you know, this will happen. And, and rather than kind of actually this is what it means for ordinary people. And so, again, I, I think you're right that people do find it off putting. But actually, a lot of the time they are entirely correct to think that their vote won't make a difference. And that is... Um, an absolute travesty and it's fascinating i always find to go into when we're looking at spoiled ballot papers so we had three ballot papers for most patches uh, in the in the senate elections it was two for the senate and then one for police and crime commissioner and people were obviously confused as to what they were meant to do on each ballot and um, so some of that again is like education but part of that is on the political parties to educate as much as it, you know i agree the media need to do a better job people didn't know what they were voting for um, or how to use their ballot paper and you know that we just loads of spoiled ballots and primarily it's because people didn't know how to use their vote and I mean one of the things they say quite a lot is that actually you know if we're not asking people for their vote why should we expect it and a lot of the time you know in a lot of the country people aren't being asked for their vote you know we all saw in you know Chesh places like Chesham and Amersham when we go down for the first time there's this kind of like polite friendly bemusement at this idea of a politician being on a doorstep and asking questions and caring about what they think and you know actually it's it's not okay that it takes a parliamentary by-election for those people to be listened to and that is the case in most of the country you know most people live in safe seats where they won't be regularly contacted by politicians and they won't have people speaking to them and listening to them and, you know, actually, why sh if we're not asking for their vote, why should we expect it? And I think that is true for sort of politicians in general. 
I was just going to say, John, because you said about this uh, this clip with Laura Kunzberg and this ex uh, Labour voter. I didn't see this, so she she'd been invited to an event to hear Keir Starmer listen to them. Um, because I just in my head I just get this image of a of a, a lady turning up in Blackpool expecting some sort of night of entertainment and being treated <laughs> to Keir Starmer's listening experience. No, no, it, it wasn't an insomniac anonymous or anything like that. It was, um, but no, it was it was really. If you want, I, I have no problem with plugging another podcast. So if you go to the newscast one a few days ago, I think it might have been Thursday last week or something like that, where they did it, where they had all Labour former Labour voters who had left at various times. So some of them, right up till recently, loved Jeremy Corbyn, but I've left since. Right the way back to this lady who left just before New Labour, some left during New Labour, all sorts of things. I actually found it quite an interesting discussion actually about where where Labour's at and, and actually some of the difficulties Labour have got going forward. Again, we've talked about this loads. What is their key vote strategy for Labour? And I don't know where it is. Um, but all that to one side, we can revel in the fact that Lib Dems are doing a little bit better in the polls. You know, we, we only ever talk about polls when they go in our favour. When they're not in our favour, we just say, well, we always do better than the polls and polls don't count. But, I mean, uh, does anyone want to talk about why we think the Chesham bounce has lasted? Is that just because we've been right on a couple of issues? Is Ed Davies swaggered in like Conor McGregor and has turned the polls around? Yeah, that's what it. That's what it must be. The Davy train or whatever Laura put on her tweet. <laughs> um, but go on, Laura. Uh, I'm uh, sorry. I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to um, not be the insanely irrationally optimistic Lib Dem for once. Like, look that that kind of plus seven poll putting us on thirteen percent. You know, it looked fantastic. But I mean, it's worth remembering that the reason it was plus seven and thirteen percent is because the previous one had us on six percent. Mm. Um, you know, we've had three good polls in a row. You know, a couple on twelve and a couple on thirteen. It does seem that kind of the average is probably ticking up slightly of our position in the polls from a kind of range of kind of five percent to ten percent to a kind of range of kind of six or seven percent through to kind of twelve or thirteen percent so there is a kind of very slight upward tick but I think it's quite a long I I certainly would not be drawing any conclusions on the basis of of these polls just as I wasn't when you know there were a series of polls putting us on kind of five six percent um you know the the poll that matters is the one that happens on election day and I mean it's it's nice to have polls that kind of look a little bit more positive but i'm i'm certainly not counting any chickens um, i'm desperately trying not to uh look at claire at this point because i'm gonna say regardless of what hqs say and do generally it's up to you on the ground to make that difference and win those elections and that hqs as long as they don't do something stupid generally you know that's what we're kind of looking for or am i being really harsh on you claire no, I don't. I don't like. You know, uh, I, I think the reality is, is we've got to keep it up there, and we've not got to do anything wrong, and we need to be. You know, I, 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 there's obviously an opportunity at the moment to go forward um, with all of the things that are happening and all the liberal things that are happening, and there is a space for us. But there's only a space for us if, if we make the most of it. Um, so that is still us going out knocking on doors and it's still in our hands and like Laura says you know there are areas of the country that we've just seen that haven't had their door knocked on and when there is somebody finally happy to go and knock on their door admitting in a by uh, you know parliamentary by-election but actually I wonder how many other seats there are out that we're not even looking at um, not to be overly optimistic not suge suggesting you know a 140 seat strategy but I am I think there are probably lots of people out there that actually do feel disaffected and, and there is a room for the party, but only if we're willing to go and do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're wondering why we're not going to mention the Greens, it's because we just did a whole blooming episode on them. So if you want to uh, talk about the Greens, let's uh, go to that episode. It's a really interesting one about whether we should work with them or not. But at the moment, the Greens are kind of imploding all to do with trans issues and uh, all sorts of other stuff. So I'm just going to let them eat themselves in the background somewhere. But just take a little break to thank some of our wonderful Patreon subscribers. For those of you who don't know, the Lib Dem podcast is completely run by us volunteers. We are not paid for by the party. 
in any way. And we are very grateful for people that sign up to Patreon to show us a tiny bit of money every month, meaning we can keep the podcast going. It covers our costs. We can get excellent guests on. Uh, so you know, we really appreciate those that do it. And on behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Lee Win Stanley for becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Lee. And I'd, and I'd like to thank Ian Donaldson of, on behalf of becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. And Ian, good, good fact for you. You spell Ian the same way my dad does, with two eyes, which is apparently Scottish for John. Huge shout out to Irene Vesper as well for uh, her generous donation as well. And thank you for me to, to Mark Willis. Thank you so much for becoming one of our Patreon supporters and helping the podcast keep running. Although I will also say that if anyone from HQ is listening and would like to um, start funding us, as John noted, we are not currently funded. Obviously, we would be happy to accept your donation as well. well do we have to take editorial controls? Oh, that's a whole other kettle of Absolutely not. We, we can't. Do, <laughs> imagine trying to, trying to control someone like Hannah Kitchen's rants. How would they possibly do that? It would yeah, be, drought. Oh. We're going to have to keep relying on the uh, on the donations of our supporters after all. So, yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for your support. And uh, if, if anyone else is, is minded to drop us a food bob a, a, a week or a month, please do so. Yep. And it's patreon.com forward slash libdempod. We're all on there and that, no, very much appreciate. Right, let's go on to something. Are we about to see the end of the triple lock? Now, this is something that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm generally interested in what discussion we've got because I've got certain views of this, but I'm going to listen to the debate that you guys are going to have. I have no idea wh- where you all stand on them, but I was incredibly proud of the triple lock when we brought in coalition. You know, it, it, was, it was in the Lib Dem manifesto, no one else's, and since it was brought in, Basically, every single party has kind of thought, well, you can't touch the triple lock, mainly because, A, pensioners vote, uh, but also it has that kind of, it just seemed to be get rid of the problems when I think it was under the Blair government, we had a 10 pence increase one year, and it just kind of solved that issue. Now, who wants to go first? Are we keeping it? Are we dishing it? Laura, first up there. Go on, Laura. Yeah, so I have I my I have quite a strong view that we should be sort of keeping it for now with a potential um some kind of potential modification this year because i i do think that um we still have very low pensions by international standards and actually the triple lock is a way to build that up gradually in a way that doesn't kind of create too much of a financial hit in any one year so it's a way to bring it up gradually to kind of a more um comparable international level over time that is a good thing and it's one that will benefit all of us even if we aren't currently retired um having said that it wasn't designed for the context of a pandemic and an eight percent rise because lots of people lost their jobs and are getting them again when you know people really haven't seen a um a, you know a real a real rise in in kind of in their incomes it's it's just a kind of statistical fluke it's not it's not really what it was designed for and for so anyone who's listening to this who isn't familiar with it the idea of the triple lock is that pensions will rise by either inflation um wages or 2.5 percent whichever is lower um so i mean i i do think it would be appropriate potentially to kind of have some kind of um you know averaging averaging system um to account for kind of any kind of weird statistical quirks like the one we're seeing having said that you know if they decide not to do that i don't actually have that strong objection to it what i do object very strongly to is that they're planning to give pensioners an eight percent rise while giving nurses one percent and while not adequately funding children's catch-up classes and telling us that we don't have the money for that because i'm sorry but either we have the money to pay for this stuff or we don't and if we do then i'm sorry why why do pensioners get eight percent and nurses only get one percent teachers get nothing and why are we not investing adequately in, you know, I, I, I can't think that there's anything more important that we should be spending money on than helping our children catch up from the education that they've lost during this pandemic. So the double standards I find deeply concerning. Um, but also, actually, I think that we need to start thinking quite hard about what our exit strategy from the triple lock is and starting to plan that in in advance, because I think the kind of furore we're having over this rise and you know it just shows how difficult it's going to be for any government to repeal it but of course we can't keep it on forever because if we did you know it would you know the the kind of logical end state is that kind of 
100% of GDP is spent on pensions. Mm. So, you know, at some point we will get to the point where actually we've raised it to the point where our pensions are at a kind of comparable level compared to, to kind of other countries. And where we can say, actually, that's great. The triple lock has achieved its purpose and we now need to switch it to a double lock or, or whatever that might look like. And I think what this has shown for me is that actually we need to start defining now what the objective of the triple lock is and legislating for that well in advance to attempt to try and kind of take some of the sting out of it. Because I think otherwise, you know, it, it's hard to see how how it ends and and I think there will be a point where actually it isn't needed anymore and I do think at the moment it still is but there will be a point where it isn't and and what is that point and I, I just don't know the answer but I think that's the conversation that we should be having. One slight correction it isn't which is lowest out of those three things you mentioned is which is highest. Oh yes sorry. Which, which is why I mean if anyone saw again I'm a bit of a nerd and I, I really like Newsnight if anyone saw Ben Chu's report on this last week he said the reason why that eight percent has come about is because we had such a depression because of the pandemic and then such a spike incline because of it that that has led to that just an anomaly so again before i bring claire in next is it the fact that maybe the answer to this is just a bit of flexibility from the government to say actually maybe it just doesn't make sense for this year or is that then just uh, for those advocates who say no the triple lot must be protected if you decide to not do it one year, it becomes very easy to not do it another year. I think you're probably right. I think if you if you enter flexibility, um, there is a, a risk that that means that's not the norm anymore. And um, I think I think Laura is absolutely correct that you know it's very difficult to say. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, NHS employee, um, you're not getting any increase. Um, but I do think that the Conservatives do this at their peril. Um, I, I think there's a, you know, they, and they will be making those electoral calculations. I think we should be proud that we introduced it. Um, and, you know, I definitely put it on, on leaflets um, in the coalition years. And, you know, I don't think necessarily made a factor that actually it was, it was us uh, that, that made that happen. And, and Steve Webb, who was the minister at the time, did a great job and, and now works uh, still in, in the pension uh, arena. But I, I think can, if there are genuine choices having to be made about what we can afford, um, then maybe this is not the thing we can afford, sadly. But um, I do think anybody touches it at their peril. And David, is it the fact that we talk about where pensions are and everyone, I mean, Laura talked about the total bill for um, kind of pensions. It already is a massive chunk of actually social spending is actually on pensions already. It all, I, I haven't got the figures to hand, but I do know when you look at those pie charts of what is actually spent where pensions is a monster chunk of it. But is it the fact that pensioners don't have the ability to change their circumstances as easy as someone who is younger. So if if you are 60 and your circumstances change, it's a lot more difficult than if you're 20. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's one of the things that it, it, the lock was there so people didn't fall through those gaps. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, look, kind of what we talked about as well was, you know, this was a commitment by all three parties and absolutely understand circumstances have changed. But I think, as you've rightly said, any any erosion in that now makes it much, much easier to do that further down the line. And I, I really wouldn't trust the Conservatives with this by saying, oh, we're only going to do it this one time and not not elsewhere. But the look, we are. if you remove the safeguard for a lot of pensioners now, then you do end up with a situation, as you say, where rightly you could end up with a, a severe level of depression and poverty in old age pensioners in the UK. We have a massively aging population in this country. It's obviously going to be made harder by the fact that we're now saying we're going to have caps on people coming to this country who could obviously uh, contribute to taxes, etc., to take on some of that burden. So we've now got to think about how you actually do that. But I think what the Chancellor needs to be thinking of is really... Uh, uh, there's other places that money could be saved that's not going to impact how we look after our pensioners. My question would be, is why is it they're looking at this now? But as you rightly said, look, we've got to be working. This is not something that you can do in short-term cycles. You've got to have a long-term goal in mind. And I think if you start doing things like eroding it now, it makes a lot of young people think, well, why would I bother paying Social Security? Because I'm not sure I'm ever going to have anything at the end of it. I'll just have that money now and spend it as is. You're going to have a lot of 
uh, people who are nearing retirement that are going to be seriously concerned about, well, if they're willing to backtrack on this commitment, what other things can I actually trust the government with? And really, where should my money be? And who should I be using that with? Um, well, I think the other thing that we haven't really touched on here is um, <laughs> fundamentally from a Scottish perspective, this makes all the things that we tell people about the reasons for staying in the United Kingdom fundamentally harder to propose. If you say to people, there's massive uncertainty about your state pension in an independent Scotland, they're turning around and going, well, you know, the Conservatives might end the triple lock and there's massive uncertainty about your state pension now. So would it be any worse? So I think... I, I, I cautiously enter this to understand what are they putting on the table as opposed to this? And really, what is it? Is it going to be just a this year's an anomaly, so we'll stop it and there'll be commitments that that won't happen again? Or are they going to seriously erode this and, you know, with a, a majority in place, uh, it does concern me massively. And I think the other thing is that if, we, if we're defining where we want to get to, then actually, you know, an 8% rise, well, we get there sooner and that's, that's fine actually that's great because i mean you're absolutely right you know the last thing we want is people spending their old age in poverty um and you know we still do have pensioner poverty much less than we did before the triple lock was introduced but you know it's still there and um and you know that's that's just not acceptable in a wealthy country like the uk um but i think that if we i think what we need to be thinking about is where do we want this to go because actually if we saying that then say we want to say at the moment i think we're about kind of halfway through the the kind of table of oecd countries but you know say we want to you know get into the top you know the top quarter or something is our objective and you know something like that you know i I, you know i don't know what it might be i think i'm you know i'm not an expert on pensions i'm sure steve webb actually will have some excellent thoughts on what the objective of the triple lock should be maybe we should get him on and ask him but actually if we if we know where we're getting to, then, you know, give people an 8% rise this year and then we get there sooner. Great. That's brilliant. You know, we're getting to, you know, achieving our objective sooner. But I think I just worry if we if we don't define where we're trying to get to that sort of does this become untouchable? And what does that, you know, what does that then mean for the kind of the UK's balance of balance of how we're distributing money and, and spending? Um Laura, let me just come in because because sorry, completely well, I, forgot what I was going to say anyway. <laughs> well, well, the point I was going to make, I finally I've got the figures. So the OBR has figures from 2016-17. So out of the 217 billion pounds spent on welfare, 59% of it goes on pensions. So it is already a huge cost. But as David alluded to, that isn't going away at any time soon. In fact, I think the last figures were there's four working age people to every pensioner at the moment that is due to go down to two working age people per pensioner and how you square that circle is going to be a major issue for whichever government whoever's in charge of the next few years and again as david said we're making it worse for ourselves with a brexit because one of the ways of dealing with an aging population is to have immigration into the country that comes in spends money puts money in the coffers and then usually don't retire here or go home uh so it's it, it is a real trouble and I, you know what i i'm a royal london i have a royal london pension which steve webb works for i feel i have an obligation to ask him to come on the podcast now i think you know that's a good idea we will we will make a note and i'll get in i'll get in touch with steve but i also remembered what i was going to say which was a sort of another aspect of the pension inequality where i think we need to think quite carefully about sort of one of the ways the triple lock has been paid for has been by raising the state pension age which has massive equity issues sort of within the kind of older older community because, you know, we basically middle-class people live a kind of average of kind of 10 years longer than people who've been in manual jobs. And so, you know, everyone's paying their national insurance contributions, you get your pension at the end of it. But actually, um, you know, some people are getting that pension for kind of three, five, 10 years, and some people are getting that for 10, 15, 20 years. And the higher the state pension age rises, the kind of the more acute that sort of inequality becomes. And I think everybody deserves to have a kind of safe and, you know, a safe and comfortable retirement. But that also means that we have to be quite careful about not allowing the state pension age to kind of rise any further. And that, you know, counts double when you start seeing some of the people like the WASPy women who've seen their pension age go up by sort of eight years or something compared to, to what they, they originally expected. So I think it's just a really complex issue. Um, and I, I suppose I just feel like the kind of 
should we keep the triple lock this year y slash n is the least is, is the kind of least effective way for us to start having that conversation about it and what we need to be thinking about is you know actually what do we want the, our provision for for old age to look like in this country yeah and it's all wrapped up with a whole lot of other issues i mean going back to the general election we had the thing called the skills wallet which is actually the thing about pre- preparing people as they go through life to have difference in career extending their work life uh, into slightly older age because you're able to retrain coupled also at some point social care has to be sorted and that is another huge thing and you know We've been waiting for that for what since Boris Johnson first said he said he's got a plan for social care. No one's seen it. Anyone who's a county councillor or upper tier councillor knows that this time bomb is waiting, and no one yet has figured out a way of doing it because no one seems to want to. And again, we're talking about electorally. If you think of the Theresa May disaster election in 2017, it was messing around with pensions and and, and messing around with social care that the dementia tax or whatever it ended up getting labelled as, that completely and utter scuppered Theresa May when she was 40 points ahead at the start of that campaign. We're just running now to the end of this podcast, so thank you very much for coming on. I suppose it comes on all of us to say one of the big Lib Dem news of this last week was Willie Rennie stepping down. And I know me and David have had conversations within our WhatsApp group about we do need an episode probably about the Scottish Lib Dems, about what's going on, what does this mean. I did see that Willie Rennie wrote a, an article, I can't remember for which paper, but it was behind a paywall, so I didn't actually see it. But it David, was the press and journal. Was it? Uh, well, David, what's your just quick impressions of what's happened there? Yeah, so I mean, I, I was fairly surprised, to be honest. I, I didn't think uh, Willie was going to step down when he did. Um, it, it kind of came... It may be an odd time where you would usually expect that to maybe happen quite soon after an election. Um, and actually, he's, he's taken a bit of time to review where the party is. Uh, I, I mean, I was quite um, uh, quite glad to... Willie asked me to, to help in terms of a members review event of the election and as the party in its future um, only about a month ago. And that was quite an interesting uh, event. I think he's maybe done a lot of soul searching at that point and decided that perhaps... He's, he's been in the role for 10 years. Maybe it's time to see if a fresh face can maybe move the needle a bit. I, I mean, I would say, first of all, I think there's a lot of thanks that the Scottish Lib Dems, and I think actually the Liberal Democrats as a whole need to pay towards Willie Rennie, um, probably even when you think outside of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, we probably wouldn't have the numbers we do in Westminster at this moment in time if it wasn't buoyed up by some of the MPs that we still have in Scotland, and Willie pays a, a huge part in that. I think... Um, He's had a very difficult game to play over the last 10 years and he's been able to hold that party together and hold us in some very key seats and actually increase our votes in some of those key seats. Um, And just on a personal note, since I joined the party, Willie has been nothing but kind and encouraging to me. Um, He's he's just a lovely person to be around, actually, and he's very energetic and inspiring. Um, And, you know, just some things that happened, you know, when I was running in the Scottish elections, you know, he would send me sometimes little notes on Twitter and stuff like that through direct message just to tell me, you know, good stuff you're doing, keep going and things like that. And it's things like that that really spur you on as a candidate to go, okay, I I can do more. I, I need to be doing more. The leaders, you know, giving me praise etc and, and it, that he doesn't need to do that so that shows the kind of person that he is so you know I, I think a huge vote of thanks from myself to Willie I, I think it will be interesting to see uh, what the next steps are I think probably most of us know who we think might be the favourite for the leadership in Scotland um, it probably remains to be seen what the what happens and who comes out the woodwork shall we say in the next month or so when we open up nominations yeah, so and I mean, we'd love to have him on the podcast as well at some point. So reach into your DMs, David. Let's see if we <laughs> let's see if we can uh, we can oh, get slide him on. into Willie's DMs. So, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, but no, on behalf of the party, obviously he, he has. It's, it's been a tumultuous time in Scottish politics, and, and Willie's been there right the way through it. So no, on behalf of the podcast, he, I mean, he's not re- resigning as a as a MSP. He is no. just obviously stepping down as leader. But no, but no. All the best to him, and I hope he gets a, a little bit more time and a little bit less stress. But anything else we guys want to talk about before we go? Anything massively important? We do know loads of people contacted us on our uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram feeds all about some of the stuff that's happening across the world. 
You know, there's all sorts of issues regarding Cuba, Afghanistan. There's just so much going on. The floods in Germany, you know, there's loads going on. And we have actually put a request in for Leila Moran to come on the podcast uh, to talk about a lot of these issues. So we hopefully that we'll get a positive response from that. But anything, anyone burning, last thing, get it off your chest. Anything you want to talk about? The only thing I wanted to talk about, John, was uh, GB News's desperation throw of the dice by giving Nigel Farage a primetime slot from seven o'clock on words every weeknight Monday to Thursday um, I think that will be a key indic- when we talked about this culture war I think this will be a key indicator of how much does that actually reach the British public if um, if he somehow can bring some sort of game saving ratings to GB News I think it's probably more of a problem than we think it is if GB News completely collapses then I don't think it's anywhere near the level that it's been bigged up to be Yeah, Claire your last thoughts on anything and anything I think just to, uh, you know, we all obviously saw the aid um, cuts uh, vote last week and another damning invi- uh, indictment on where the Conservative Party is and how they feel um, that that is, you know, acceptable uh, to lose some of our power abroad. Um, and, you know, um, I think when when you're on the same side as, side as Theresa May, I sometimes question myself. But um, I thought her her speech was extremely powerful, if, if anybody saw it last week. And again, that's another example of where the Tories don't have to do that. They're choosing to do that, really. I don't think many people are on the street going, well, you know, absolutely, we should be cutting aid right now. And people may think that, but I wouldn't say there's a massive cl- like clarion call for it. Mm. But Laura... Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd agree with both of those. And I think the the floods in Germany are probably the, the you know, the one that I'm watching. I mean, I think that footage was just horrifying and kind of combined with the um, sort of extreme heat wave that we saw in Canada and the Pacific Northwest of the United States, where um, I was listening to a, a sort of podcast about a, a town where basically the kind of sort of the surrounding woodlands sort of spontaneously caught fire and the town was burnt down in kind of 20 minutes and people were kind of narrowly escaping with their lives and seeing the same with floods in in Germany that that are ongoing I think we're just seeing um quite how bad the the effects of climate change could well be and I think that's something that we we all need to be thinking about how do we um how do we respond to that as as to be fair our party has been doing for some time you know this is something that many of us do sort of campaign on regularly, but I think it's something that we just all need to be thinking about how we can step that up one bit further. Absolutely. Well, thank you all three of you for coming on the podcast. Thank you to David, to Laura and to Claire. Again, if you want to talk about anything on this issue, do comment below, you know, comment on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, all those comments. We do read and we do have a chat with our WhatsApp group. We also decide sometimes on what episodes we're going to do based on what you comment as well. So it's, absolutely great to hear from you and then thank you so much for all those people who subscribe and listen and all those people strange enough we've had a lot of people come out and listening to our very first episode so our review of the 2019 local elections was an absolute stormer by me and richard so i hope you're enjoying it but in the meantime do look after yourselves it is a bit cost that del britain out there so it's nine o'clock at night at the moment so we're all going to go out and water our plants because it's like the only time of the day we're able to do it but thank you so much for listening and watching and we'll be back with another episode very soon <laughs>